Welcome to a Friday night edition of Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker and I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Very good, Michael. Great pleasure to be joining you down the line. I may not be near you in person, but I'm very near you in heart, Michael, and that will never change. In spirit, in politics, in emotion, all the different ways apart from physically, of course. Um, we've got some huge stories for you this evening. Uh, an arrest warrant has been put out by the International Criminal Court against Vladimir Putin. And we're also going to be talking about the Labour files. Um, very interesting interview has been put out by Al Jazeera. Um, and we're going to ask whether I could be replaced by ChatGBT4. First story. The International Criminal Court has today issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. This was the statement from the ICC president. Today, 17th of March 2023, the International Criminal Court has issued two warrants of arrest in the Ukraine situation. For Vladimir Putin, president of the Russian Federation, and for Maria Lvova-Belova, commissioner of the Russian President for Children's Rights, for the alleged war crimes of deportation of children from Ukrainian occupied territories into the Russian Federation. It is forbidden by international law for occupied powers to transfer civilians from the territory they live in to other territories. Children enjoy special protection under the Geneva Convention. The contents of the warrants are secret in order to protect victims. The ICC attaches great importance to the protection of victims especially children. Nevertheless, the judges of the chamber dealing with this case decided to make the existence of the warrants public in the interest of justice and to prevent the commission of future crimes. This is an important moment in the process of justice before the ICC. The judges have reviewed the information and evidence submitted by the prosecutor and determined that there are credible allegations against these persons for the alleged crimes. The ICC is doing its part of work. As a court of law, the judges issued arrest warrants. Their execution depends on international cooperation. So the crime Putin is being charged with is the unlawful deportation of children that's from occupied areas of Ukraine to Russia. Um, also, um, with an arrest warrant, is one of his ministers who was sort of in charge of this operation. Um, apparently, they've gone for this because there's very clear evidence that there's a chain of command that goes to the top. Um, the move, as you'd imagined, was welcomed by the Ukrainian foreign minister. He said, wheels of justice are turning. I applaud the ICC decision to issue arrest warrants for Vladimir Putin and Maria Belova over forcible transfer of Ukrainian children. International criminals will be held accountable for stealing children and other international crimes. And the Russians, again, as you can imagine, don't seem too fussed. Their foreign minister said this, the decisions of the International Criminal Court have no meaning for our country, including from a legal point of view. Russia is not a party of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court and bears no obligations under it. Um, it's important to note Russia isn't alone in not being a party to the International Criminal Court. This map shows in blue the countries which are party to the ICC. As you can see, they're the countries of, of Central and Western Europe, almost all of South America, Canada, Australia, Japan, and large parts of Africa. Countries that signed the treaty which founded the ICC but never ratified it, though. So that's a much, well, it's, it's another big group there in yellow. That includes Russia, 
the USA, Turkey, Israel, Egypt, and Ukraine. Um, China, India, and Indonesia are among the countries that never sign it. That's in the darker orange there. So this is only of concern if Vladimir Putin wants to go to one of those countries that you saw, which were sort of coloured in the blue. Um, what does this mean in practice then? This is uh, Jeffrey Nice. He prosecuted former Yugoslavian president Slobodan Milosevic, um, and he is speaking here immediately after the arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin was announced. Un unless he's overthrown and like Slobodan Milosevic handed over by a successor regime, it means he can't travel because he might be arrested. Um, and it may indeed encourage the process at home of his replacement. We don't know very much, if anything, at least people like me don't know anything, about what's going on in the Kremlin to see his overturn uh, and replacement. But there's enough information seeping out to indicate that there are some who are unhappy with his leadership. And having your leader labelled and treated as a criminal throughout the world might just be a bit of an encouragement to see change of regime uh, becoming more palatable or appealing to those who would like trade to continue and develop, something to be decided about the assets of their country that have been frozen around the world and so on. So he may be handed over, he may not. He may disappear into Russia if somebody else takes over. His life may come to an end. But in itself, it's a very important process, and I'm grateful that Karim Khan and his team have finally brought this out. That was to Jeffrey Nice, who I'm sure is an incredibly intelligent man. You know, I'm sure he did great work prosecuting Slobodan Milosevic. That, to me, seemed a little bit politically naive, the idea that you'll have people in Vladimir Putin's inner circle who decide to take the massive risk to take him out because he has been indicted, or there is an arrest warrant, sorry, from the International Criminal Court. It seems a little bit far-fetched to me. I think potentially lawyers have a tendency to overstate the power of law. It would make sense to, to do that. You've devoted your life to it. Um, Aaron, I mean, what's your take on this? Do you think this arrest warrant is particularly significant? Well, it depends what you mean by significant. I suppose some people would say that it's symbolically significant. And I suppose the, the Russian response is to say, well, symbolism doesn't really matter to us. It's symbolic to the people you care about. It's not symbolic to the people that we care about. The map you showed earlier on from the Council of Foreign Relations, hugely illustrative, by the way, of how the world, by which I mean the whole world, not the international community, uh, has a range of views on stuff like this. Now, look, I would love the entire planet to be a signatory to the International Criminal Court and um, to observe its its importance in upholding international law, but frankly, that's not the case. And as you've said, and as that, that map showed, many countries don't take it seriously as an institution. Worse still, in fact, and perhaps Russia has similar legislation, but I, I'm unaware of it. The United States is not only not a signatory uh, to the relevant legislation, it also has a piece of legislation called, and let me get this right, Michael, because it's important, uh, the American Service Members Protection Act. This is colloquially known as the Hague Invasion Act. So if an American national, an American national, Michael, not a senior politician or former politician or senior member of military staff, an American national, if they're tried at the International Criminal Court, the US will literally get them out by force if necessary. Also, the US doesn't uh, sell arms to signatories of the relevant legislation, it doesn't sell arms to countries that recognize the International Criminal Court, with the exception of NATO members, obviously, and a few others like, like Taiwan. 
but it's a point of state policy in the US to not take the International Criminal Court especially seriously. Now, that's not to say this isn't important. It's not to say that Vladimir Putin shouldn't stand trial. I personally think he should. Of course he should. Uh, but for those saying, well, this is just hypocrisy from, quote unquote, the international community, there's more than an ounce of truth to that. I suppose the other argument, the counter argument is that this can be um, sort of actively counterproductive, not just, you know, because I, I suppose there's free takes on this. This really matters. Um, and that's sort of the, the legal opinion you just heard there from on, on Sky News from that um, former judge. Then there's the opinion, you know, you know, fine. It's probably the case that Vladimir Putin has committed war crimes. I mean, I'm of no doubt really that he has. I mean, the war of aggression is, is the principal war crime, for example, and I think he has committed that. Um, but this sort of prosecution or this arrest warrant from the ICC isn't going to make much difference either sort of legally in practice or politically in terms of the internal politics of Russia. And then there's a third position, which is that it's it, it's worse than impotent. It could be actively counterproductive because if what we want is to create off-ramps for, for Vladimir Putin, whereby he can sort of roll back from the brink, I mean, he's already passed the brink, hasn't he? But, but roll back from the, from the next brink, um, one could say, and sign a peace deal, sort of say, I'm going to pretend to my people that this was a victory, even though I've been defeated and we'll sort of end the war in some sort of messy ceasefire. If, if that's our best outcome, does it help that he thinks that if, you know, he loses this war and potentially has to be pushed out of power at some point, he could end up on trial in The Hague. So some people say that, that that's going to make him even more belligerent um, because he doesn't have a, a way out now. I mean, Aaron, what's your take on that? Well, actually, there is a historic precedent here, Michael, which is Augustin Pinochet, Augusto Pinochet, the former president of, the former dictator uh, of Chile. And in 1980, there was a plebiscite held, which was asking a question, do you want Pinochet to remain as you know the, the, the supreme leader of the country, so to speak? And a majority of Chileans said no. I think it was about 56, 57, 58% said no. So you know, pretty, pretty, pretty decisive. And Pinochet stood down. And since then, Chile has had democratic elections. He was later arrested in, in London in, I think, the late 1990s, although he never stood trial, but he was arrested. And this was seen as a real watershed moment because it was the first time that a former international leader, of course, before Milosevic, was arrested for what were perceived as international crimes. Um, now, I suppose the question is, and this is obviously relevant towards Putin and what next for Russia, would Pinochet have permitted the transition to democracy if he knew that he would stand trial for international crimes, if he knew that he would be arrested while traveling and residing in the United Kingdom in the late 1990s? So, you know, that, that, that point about off-ramps um, isn't purely academic. We've had something similar happen in the past. You know, the incentives for Pinochet to cling on to power until he died would have been far, far higher if he, if he foresaw what would ultimately happen at the end of the 1990s. So it's a really relevant question, Michael. And I really don't like the pushback from some people who, who say, don't talk about off-ramps. They don't exist. Well, they, they probably don't exist. But I think it is important to at least try and mitigate possible um, escalation here because it's a nuclear-armed country. And I'm not saying that Russia's going to declare nuclear war on the West. Yes, a lot of it is hubris and politicking and speaking through, you know, uh, a megaphone using the best tool that, that Putin has. The only real leverage he has over the West, really, real leverage, is of course the threat of nuclear war. I'm not suggesting it's likely, but I think the, the conversation, yes, about off-ramps and trying to maximize the possibility of Russia withdrawing from Ukraine or accepting a negotiated peace settlement, 
I, I think this, this is probably not part of that. That's not to say it's wrong. You know, I, I, like I said earlier, I totally support uh, the role of the International Criminal Court, despite the hypocrisies from the West. Uh, but it, it, it could be a factor in, in, in how long he stays and whether he clings on to power or not. I think that precedent of Pinochet is hugely, hugely relevant. You know, I mean, another suggestion I've heard made today, sort of on the news in the wake of this um, announcement, is that it, the timing is very close to a planned visit by Xi Jinping to Moscow. And there's a suggestion this is to try and put pressure on him not to make closer relationships with Russia. I mean, Aaron, my, my initial reaction to that is to think, well, one, China isn't a signatory of the ICC. Neither is America, neither is Russia. And China is actually, you know, pretty uh, effective and willing to sort of say, stuff your international community. It's just an imposition of the West anyway. So I, I imagine, you know, it, it's not going to be the case that in Beijing they're thinking, oh, no, this is awkward. We're going to visit Vladimir Putin just as there's been, uh, just as there's been an arrest warrant from the, from the ICC. Or do you think there might be, you know, will this make it more awkward than it otherwise would have been? No, they couldn't care less, Michael, let's be honest. You know, I, I really think the way that China is reported, particularly here in the UK, I can't speak about the US, but the way it's reported is just, it's outlandish. It's outlandish. You know, we, it is now, it's, we talk about deglobalization. We're now just, you know, we're now, we're now seeing deglobalization. We're seeing sort of competing world realities. China is a country of 1.4 billion people, has very good relations with most of ASEAN. I mean, you know, it doesn't have great relations with someone like Japan, but it's, I think it's Japan's number one trade partner, right? That shows you the level of, economic integration there. Obviously, good relations with Russia, good relations across the global south, good relations with countries in the Caribbean, Michael. So it's a huge player. Like I say, 1.4 billion people. India, 1.4 billion people. ASEAN, best part of a billion people. You know, this is, we're talking about more than half the planet. And I think it's going it's to be hard for, quote unquote, the international community, the West, to realize that, that there's a big old world out there that doesn't include them. You know, one, one statistic I read this week, Michael, which really took my breath away, China, as a result of these new trade sanctions with regards to microprocessors, you know, it's, it's now going to be very hard to buy microprocessors and microprocessing technology, the, the, the technology that makes the microprocessors. Um, there's only three cu countries in the world with companies like that in the Netherlands, in Japan, and, and in the United States. As a result, China is saying, well, we're going to spend $140 billion in developing a domestic microprocessor industry that china thinks big you know it doesn't think, oh my god the west have done this what are we going to do I, I know we like to think that but you know the evidence would appear to, to the contrary i think mean, that's some very important perspective which is generally mess, missed as you say sort of in the western press it's like why is china not listening to us um, surely they will do soon the icc's arrest warrant for vladimir putin happens to have gone out on the 20th anniversary of the iraq war and to mark that anniversary, Mehdi Hassan spoke to former Chief Weapons Inspector for the UN, Hans Blix. Tony Blair, they launched this war, like I said, on a platform of lies, and yet they faced no consequences for rushing ahead without even confirming that WMDs existed, ignoring your advice. You dealt with them directly. You met with them. You tried to persuade them. Looking back now, should they have faced some consequences for the disaster that is Iraq? Well, in principle, yes. I think that has been felt ever since the First World War. And after the Second World War, you had, of course, the Nuremberg Tribunals. And now, with the Russians invading Ukraine, you have many people acting to set up collection of evidence for some kind of trials after the end of the Ukraine war. So I think that the principle, the rule in the United Nations Charter that you are not allowed to 
uh, use force against territorial integrity and independence of other states, that should have, of course, a corroboration in a penalty rule that if you, you mention you get you mentioned principle obviously in reality in real life it's not going to happen but i'm just wondering in theory in principle are you saying that you would have liked to see a george bush a tony blair put in front of the hague like any other person who has defied violated international law accused of committing war crimes i think in principle yes and i think that even they would not come and and nor would putin come before a tribunal but nevertheless, holding the tribunal, going through the evidence, I think would be of value, yes. Indeed, we hear very much from the Western world about the, the rule-based international order. Now, that is the one that the US and UK and the others broke in yes. 2003. So that was Hans Blix. He was the UN chief weapons inspector. And that was, you know, you might remember him from the news in 2003 because he was the person who was doing the inspecting in Iraq. Um, America and the UK were saying, no, they're not, they're not letting the inspectors do their work, so we're going to have to invade them. Hans Blix was saying, no, I mean, don't invade them. We are still having a, a good go at doing this inspecting that we were supposed to be doing. Um, they were obviously ignored, and now Hans Blix, 20 years later, I mean, that interview, I mean, I'm sure he said it in the interim as well, sort of saying, yes, that act by George Bush and Tony Blair to say, screw the UN, screw the weapons inspectors, we're going to invade. That should have put them, I mean, not necessarily in front of the International Criminal Court, but in front of some other um, international tribunal. Um, obviously, as we've been speaking about, America isn't a signatory to the ICC. So it'd have to be some sort of um, ad hoc um, tribunal. Um, Aaron, what did you make of that? That was gold dust, Michael. What a get from Medi. Last week, he was speaking to us here at Navarra Media. Now he's speaking to Ham Hans Black's Hans Blix, rather, saying that um, Blair and Bush should stand trial for what was an illegal war of aggression. It's something we said right at the start of the, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Michael. What Russia has done to Ukraine is an illegal war of aggression. It's illegal under international law. Since 1945, it's been called the supreme breach of international law because there is no greater war crime than a war of aggression, which is to infringe and invade uh, the, the territorial terrain, it's to infringe their territorial sovereignty, by armed force, which is what precisely we did in, in Iraq with the United States. We were not the good guys. And I find it, I do find it remarkable. It was the exact same thing. It was the exact same breach of international law that Russia is doing with Ukraine. It's not the same thing because of course they're neighboring, there's historic context, which is different, et cetera. But from an international law perspective, it is the exact same thing. It's the precise same thing. And it is extraordinary that the people flying Ukraine flags and so on, good for them. My wife has a pair of Ukraine socks somebody kindly bought for her. Great. Why do people care so much? Because what's happened is evil, and many people are dying and suffering as a result of an illegal war of aggression. We did the exact same thing in Iraq. We did the precise same thing in Iraq. This is not whataboutery, because we're now talking about 20 years after that invasion. Many, many people died as a result. It's not whataboutery. We've got Alistair Campbell, the comms guru from one of the primary perpetrators, Tony Blair, doing podcasts. Saying, oh, well, and, you know, on reflection, how do we think about it? Well, let's reflect properly. Let's have your boss have to answer some questions in front of The Hague. That's reflection. And it's important to say, Michael, this is not prejudging anything. The exact same point has been raised with regards to Putin and the ICC. He has clearly questions to answer, clearly. That's the point of a trial. I'm not saying send Blair to prison, although that may happen, right? Clearly, there are questions to answer in regards to breaches of international law and the war in Iraq. That's what Hans Blix is saying. 
He's a very eminent man to do so. And by the way, Hans Blix was, was not some radical. This guy, prior to becoming a diplomat and uh, working for the UN, was uh, a member of the, the Swedish Liberal Party. And he wasn't even a social democrat, let alone you know somebody on the left. So this is sensible, moderate politics to say that, yes, guess what? The whole point of international law is that it applies to everyone. It's not just a cudgel with which the West can beat other people, other lesser countries. By the way, I can't even get the big boys like China and Russia. It's just the, the, you know, small fry, like Slobodan Milosevic or, or Saddam Hussein. Let's be real. That, that's what it is. I would like it not to be that, but that's what it is. Um, and it's not just Hans Blix who said this at the time. In the early 2000s, Kofi Annan, who was the UN uh, Secretary General, said this was an illegal war of aggression. This is nothing new. And often when you say this in the UK media, people say, how could you say this? It's ridiculous. It wasn't illegal. The Attorney General said it was legal. <laughs> I don't think it's now the Attorney General. Okay? And you can say it's legal. Somebody else can say it's illegal. That's the point of a trial. We find out who's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that whatever is the Russian equivalent of the Attorney General has also said their invasion of Ukraine is legal, right? You can't say, oh, no, our Attorney General said... By the way, also our Attorney General originally said it wouldn't be legal without a UN um, resolution. And then, you know, suspiciously, magically, when they couldn't get a further UN resolution, changed their mind. Like, oh, no, actually, maybe I've, I've, done, re I've re read the evidence. Potentially, uh, we could um, invade Iraq and it, it wouldn't be illegal. I mean, clearly, clearly it was, right? Aaron, I, wanna, I want your thoughts, I suppose, a bit more on this 20th anniversary of Iraq. I mean, you were talking there about Hans Blick sort of being a, a moderate, you know, this is not some radical speaking here. And I suppose, I, I think a somewhat related point is you hear, like I've actually, you know, for my sins, I've listened to the first half of this Alistair Campbell podcast where he's talking um, about the Iraq war. He sort of, he, what he's always says, you've got to put yourself in our shoes, right? You've got to put yourself in our shoes. Um, there was a real heightened security threat. We really felt like da, 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 Saddam had done all this. And it's easy to say in hindsight, et cetera, et cetera, that we should have invaded Saddam, them. What had Saddam done? What had Saddam done? Will he talk about gassing the, the Kurds sort of 20 years sure. previously, et cetera? But Michael, this, you know, absolutely true. There was a heightened sense of security threat after 9-11, and then we invaded the most secular regime in the Arab world. You fucking idiot, Alistair. Do you really believe that after 20 years? I don't think you do, because you're, you, you're not an idiot. You're a smart man. Well, the other thing he says is, so the, I mean, the point I was going to make, I mean, I, I agree with you there, is that he's sort of saying, you've got to put ourselves in our shoes. It's easy to say with retrospect, et cetera, et cetera. But everyone realized at the time, right? so there were 2 million people marching in London, but there was also France, Germany, Russia, the UN, you know, all of these organizations were saying, don't go in. One, this is illegal. Two, it's crazy. And it's only going to end in, you know, terrible outcomes. And then you've got sort of like Alistair Campbell in this podcast. He's saying it was remarkable. You had George W. Bush, who was saying to, to Tony Blair, you've got to persuade Dick Cheney that we need to go to the UN. And Alistair Campbell saying, this, you know, we were a real force of moderation. It's like, you know who the forces of moderation were? It was, it was France. It was Germany. It was Russia. It was these countries saying, don't do it. Right. So we could have been a force for moderation by saying, don't do this crazy illegal thing. That's what the majority of countries in the world were saying. We decided, no, we're going to we're going to try and make war a little bit nicer than it otherwise would be. The, the, the reason a war of aggression is the supreme war crime, the, the war crime, which is above all others, is because it's what all the other ones stem from. Right. So if you, you know, enact a war of aggression, Yes, maybe you haven't said some of the you know nasty things that Vladimir Putin has said. Maybe there isn't evidence of sort of, um, oh, although, I mean, there is evidence of pretty goddamn bad stuff when it comes to those wars in the Middle East. I think the defense that they would make sort of in the West is, you know, we, we do talk to lawyers when we're operating our war aims, for example, in a way that Vladimir Putin presumably doesn't. But if you've overthrown a, a sovereign leader, if you've done regime change, if you've invaded a country 
you know, with no justification in a legal way and chaos ensues, then you can't say, oh, we were well-intentioned when millions of people die because you completely disrupt and, and, and break down the social order of an entire region of the world. Right? So it just seems to me completely bonkers. And I don't think, Aaron, you know, everyone, you know, the, the majority of people recognize the Iraq war was a mistake, but I, don't, I still don't think as a society we've had a proper reckoning with quite how much damage, quite how much damage, how much human suffering we have created in the rest of the world from that one decision. No. No, we don't. I don't know how, I honestly don't know how Tony Blair sleeps. I honestly, people talk about short start. We, we create the conditions for ISIS to emerge. What the hell are you talking about? That's not flippant, by the way. And if you're, if you're neoconservative and you're on the right, we also, you know, Britain and the United States also put Iranian influence in Iraq on steroids. There, there is no argument for it. You know, I think about some of the, the people you just mentioned there, Michael, you know, there were voices arguing against war at the time. The the French, French foreign minister was Dominique de Villepin, very slick, very dapper. You know, he argued against, well, he's not a left-winger. You know, centre-right politics. Um, Chirac was a centre-right president. You know, it wasn't some anti-war guy. It wasn't Jean-Luc Mélenchon. And de Villepin argued against it, and now he owns like a business. He owns like a clothes shop with his son. Compare that to Blair, Michael. This foaming at the mouth warmonger who won't disappear from public life. He still has to be on TV every week. ID cards. Corbyn has to go. COVID with his diktats and his consultancy fees from Kazakhstan to the Arabian Gulf. Give me Dominic de Villepin any day. Don't agree with him much. I'm sure he's a conservative, but he took the right principal decision in, in the early 2000s and now he's just retired from public life and he has a nice little shop with his son. I think his daughter. Good for him. That's a normal human being, not Tony Blair, a megalomaniac, who, by the way, somehow still is a, a cult, a, a, a point of reference for progressives in this country. Progressive, progressive. I like Tony Blair. You're progressive? Okay. I think it says something about the political sickness in this country that, that means, actually, we can't really address major problems going forward. Because our points of reference in recent, in recent past, from Blair to Thatcher, were causes of chaos in many ways. Many, many ways. Let's move on to our next story. In May 2020, following outrage at the contents of the Labour leaks, Keir Starmer commissioned the barrister Martin Ford to conduct an inquiry into the party. A little over two years later, that report was released and it was damning. Martin Ford outlined how factionalism had inhibited the handling of anti-Semitism complaints in Labour. He suggested that within the party there operated a hierarchy of racism and he suggested that tackling racism towards black and brown people was too often seen as a low priority. It was a well-researched report, but it was pretty much ignored by the mainstream media and the Labour Party itself. And Martin Ford has now spoken to Al Jazeera about his disappointment. Ford examined hostile WhatsApp messages between senior staff about Diane Abbott, a member of parliament and an ally of former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. She literally makes me sick. Abbott is truly repulsive. There's no doubt that there were comments made within the, the WhatsApp group which were racist. Um, I talk um, in terms of D D Diane Abbott and a visceral disgust. Ford felt this reflected a broader problem in the party. There were a number of submissions I received um, from party members suggesting that they did feel that the party had wider issues with their approach to racial discrimination. Quite a high proportion of black and Asian 
councillors or prospective MPs felt they'd been subjected to disciplinary action, which had been deliberately timed uh, to exclude them from qualifying processes or selection. In his report, published in July 2022, Ford made 165 recommendations. He was surprised to have heard almost nothing from the party since. I've had very limited communication with the General Secretary, David Evans, but that was really housekeeping. Um, I have spoken to a caucus of black Labour Party MPs in the House of Commons. Other than that, I've, I've not spoken to anybody um, within the party machinery. My slight anxiety is in terms of the perception of a hierarchy and genuine underlying concerns about the wider racial issues, that it's not, in my view, a sufficient response to say that was then, this is now. These are serious debates that need to be had in a respectful context, and I just feel there's, there's work to be done. Really, I mean, I was kind of stunned by that. You know, you, you've asked someone, a very eminent person, to do this report. You've said, we want this to be serious. You know, Keir Starmer at the time saying, we don't want this to be a whitewash. It gets published. It says some awkward things for the faction that's now dominating the the Labour Party because it said some bad things about the right wing. You know, it didn't it didn't say that the the left managed the Labour Party in this spectacular way, but it it was very damning as well about the faction which is currently in charge of Labour. And Keir Starmer has just ignored it. You know, no contact. He said a few formalities from the General Secretary. Uh, one meeting with Black MPs. You know, no one that was only the Black MPs cared about this report. Apparently, no one else thought that it was you know even worth reading or commenting on at all just been completely buried. I mean, Aaron, what, what do you make of that? Well, this whole saga, and it's actually one of the takeaways for me with, with Labour after 2015, is that very few people in public life, and, and, and maybe this applies just beyond the UK, but I can certainly say about the UK, very few people in public life, and I mean politicians, I mean journalists, people that want to be politicians, who are often journalists, care about the truth, care about the facts. There was a bandwagon to arrive at a certain conclusion, Jeremy Corbyn's racist, the left is racist, <clears throat> the Labour membership is appalling, bad people, et cetera, et cetera. That was a freight train. It continued for several years. Then there was a document which was released, was leaked. Uh, by the way, Martin Ford has explicitly said he thinks there's nothing wrong with that document, although it was, you know, poo-pooed by corporate media. We broke that story here at Navarra Media about the Labour leaks which is why we have the Ford report in the first place. The Ford report is then written in response to this leaked document, which reveals these appalling things. And if it wasn't for Navarro Media, Michael, nobody else would have broken that story. Nobody. So they don't care about the truth. They don't care about the facts. They don't. They just don't. So for people watching this, our audience, who are under the illusion that people in public life care about the truth, open your eyes. They do not care about the truth. Clearly, everybody that cares about the truth cares about the facts. And, and by the way, this was clearly a huge mistake to appoint Martin Ford KC, because he does, uh, would, would say, this. well, this is unacceptable. And actually, some of the assumptions and conclusions we arrived at from 2015 to 2019, are maybe, well, actually, lots of that wasn't right. Maybe lots of that was wrong. But the media and the permanent political class made their decision on this story, and no no amount of information that will disprove it or discredit it will now change their minds. Utterly extraordinary. Uh, and I think for Martin Ford as well, you think you're a professional, you're an eminent, you're a king's counsel, and you give this hours and hours and hours and hours of your life, you know? Um, I don't know what he was paid. Was it the normal rates and so on? But there's an opportunity cost there for him, right? And it's gone nowhere. The Labour Party doesn't care. The media doesn't seem to care. And, and, and the National um, Executive Committee 
Labour NEC, was asking for updates on this report for months and months and months and months. Starmer supporters on the NEC, which by the way includes people like GMB, Unison, Union people, people think they're on the soft left. You know, um, yeah, we, we, sorry, you can't see it. Why? Well, can't see it. Well, we know why they couldn't see it. It's because it, it, it gave us the, tra- the, the facts, it gave us the truth, which is actually a lot of stuff in the leaked document was, was correct. Labour has huge problems. And a lot of that isn't just on the left. So yeah, lots of people in public life don't really care about the truth, don't care about honesty. That's why good journalism matters so much, Michael. And if nothing else, that's what Navarra Media stands for. So you mentioned there sort of like the media not covering this, and that came out in this interview as well, because as Ford explains, none of them wanted to speak to him. Since July last year, how many media outlets have approached you? I think I was approached by one on the day of publication, but they candidly accepted that they hadn't actually read the report. (laughs) And I suggested they might want to do that first, and they didn't come back to me. Is that it? That's it, yep. So no one was interested. I have to admit, Aaron, when I first saw that, I was like, oh, we covered this a lot, but I never actually thought to, to in, in, invite Martin Ford on, because I assumed he wouldn't. Well, after writing this report, he's not going to come talk to Navarro Media, but it's probably worth a try, isn't it? Absolutely, we're going to make, make, make an approach. He's spoken also to, I think, Middle East Eye. So he's clearly quite open to, to discussing the report. And why shouldn't he be? As I've said, he's given this a lot of time and thought and effort. And clearly the Labour Party aren't interested. No, the media's not interested. He probably wants to talk about some of the findings. Some parts of the media were interested. One of the most damaging pieces of journalism during Corbyn's tenure was the Panorama episode, Is Labour Anti-Semitic? It made headlines for days. You probably remember it. It's a pretty appalling time to be on the left of the Labour Party. Um, in his report, though, Ford referred to the programme as an example of misleading media coverage of Labour and anti-Semitism. Now, as I say... This did upset some people in the media, this conclusion. And in the Al Jazeera interview, Ford revealed how the journalists involved in that Panorama documentary responded. The document I'm holding is an email from Karen Whiteman, who's the editor of Panorama. I would be grateful if you consider amending your report in respect of your references to Panorama so that it more fairly reflects what the programme actually said. I also received uh, emails from John Ware, who was the the lead reporter for that documentary. John Ware's email said, Your report has done significant damage to my reputation and to that of the Corporation for Journalistic Integrity. May I ask you to respond by 4pm tomorrow, 11th of October? I was a little taken aback. The tone was more like a letter before action that, you know, I might see in, in litigation. I just came in with a completely open mind, which I'm sure Mr. Ware would say he did too, and he went where his evidence took him. And, and, and that's what journalists do. I felt I had a fuller picture because I interviewed not only some of the participants in the programme, but I also interviewed those who hadn't participated in the programme from the alternative faction, as, as, as they're, they're often seen. And I would like to think that, that as I've been a barrister now, I think I'm in my 38th year, that I would have a degree of forensic skill and an ability to try and assess credibility and consistency, because that's what lawyers look for. The main email used by Panorama featured in the Labour files. It was sent by the party's director of communications, Seamus Milne, to Labour's disciplinary unit. 
Panorama claimed it revealed interference by the leadership in the disciplinary process. Milne's deputy, James Snyder, described how the email referred to a specific case and had been heavily edited. It reads, This member is a Jewish activist, the son of a Holocaust survivor. If we're more than very occasionally using disciplinary action against Jewish members for anti-Semitism, something's going wrong and we're muddling up political disputes with racism. Quite apart from this specific case, I think going forward, we need to review where and how we're drawing the line if we're going to have clear and defensible processes. So how this is used is just the red bit. So these 10 words. I felt vindicated. Um, because uh, you demonstrated graphically that it had been filleted. And, and I think the filleting meant the context was lost and a more sinister interpretation could be placed upon that email than uh, was ever intended. Ford refused to alter the wording of his report. I couldn't go so far as to say that this was deliberate. It just seemed to me to be objectively entirely misleading to have that partial quote. You know, you can really see this guy as a KC, right? Because there are lots of people who, you know, lots of activists, sort of small left Twitter accounts um, who ended up getting in trouble with John Ware because what they did was they sort of imputed motives. They sort of suggested this was John Ware trying to bring down the Labour Party or the Labour left, etc. And as Martin Ford there says, whatever your suspicions, we don't have proof of that. And, you know, it's, it's if someone is fairly litigious, you don't want to say things about having proper evidence. But what he's very confident he can say is that the outcome here was misleading. Whatever the motives, the outcome was misleading. He's a KC, he knows the law. And when he got that letter, um, which, you know, many people would have interpreted as threatening. I know John Ware has said he didn't intend it in a threatening way, but many people would interpret that as threatening. He had the, you know, the, the confidence in the law to say, no, I'm not changing the report, actually. You know, it, in my view, it was entirely misleading and that's going to stay there. Um, Aaron, what do you make of that revelation? I think this is the first we'd heard of those emails from from John Ware and the producer of Panorama. Huge. Well, I mean, it's a subtext of the entire story. Of course, we talked about the, the sort of media treatment of the Corbyn years and how they're not really interested in the truth and the facts and so on. But the BBC Panorama documentary wasn't just about a certain faction of the Labour Party bashing another faction. It was a decisive political intervention by a quote-unquote public service broadcaster. And as Ford himself has said, he thinks he got to the facts in a better way than Panorama did. And I, I think that's indisputable. He spoke to a wider range of people. Um, and I think they arrived at a more accurate conclusion because they were more forensic and they tried harder. Just a fact. I'm not imputing intention, just a fact. If you speak to more people, you're gonna get better information, a more well-rounded story. Now, on the other hand, I suppose Panorama could say, well, this gentleman had several years to write his report. We, we had to make a documentary in a matter of weeks slash months. It was months. But unless you can be fully confident about the truth of what you're publishing, particularly in the year of a general election, about somebody who may be the prime minister, unless you can be entirely confident, then you shouldn't publish it. So I'd be interested in, in hearing what John Ware has to say. Actually, I think, no, we, we have a better assessment of the facts than the Ford report. I, I, maybe he thinks that. I mean, interesting to hear his arguments as to why. And it's also important to say two things here, Michael. Uh, Navarro Media, when we've run pieces talking about Panorama, talking about John Ware, we've had so many communications from him. I don't want to go into detail about them, but we have. 
And like you say, now, I'm not suggesting that he uh, is motivated by um, uh, intimidation. I'm not suggesting that in the slightest. What I am saying is certain people would perceive it potentially as intimidation because clearly for many people, this is not, it's not a normal thing to get involved in potentially, right? They don't know what libel law is. They don't know the difference between civil and criminal law. They don't know, you know, the, the relevant legal steps, what, what they can do, et cetera. These people aren't professional journalists. They're not King's counsel. You know, they're, they're just ordinary people, like say somebody on Twitter. And, and we stood our ground as well. And we published the piece. I, I assume, I think John Ware would say, uh, in, in relation to the saying Martin Ford spoke to more people, I think Panorama said we did ask to speak to the other faction, but they didn't want to speak to us, I think, because they were suspicious it would be a complete hit job and they didn't really want to sort of have their side giving the quotes because they didn't have any trust in sort of the, the process by which the documentary would be made. You can say that was a good decision or a bad decision, but I imagine that's what they say. Um, confusingly, I find it odd, John Ware, because at the end of this Al Jazeera interview with Martin Ford, they have sort of the statements from John Ware. And one of them, he says, so that email which was suggested there, which, you know, Martin Ford clearly thinks is entirely misleading. And from that explanation from James Schneider, it seems entirely misleading. John Ware says, if you see the full email, if you see the full, full email, it's, no one would doubt the interpretation I had. Now, I did, you know, I, I'm not sure if he's published this full email. It's, it's, it's very difficult for me to see from the parts of the email that we've seen how his presentation was not entirely misleading. And obviously Martin Ford agrees. And I think most people watching this, having seen you know, what were the parts of the email that appeared in um, the, the, the Is Labour anti-Semitic documentary and what, the, what was the rest of it? I mean, it seems to me pretty cut and dry that that was misleading. Next story. ChatGPT4, the latest AI language model, is taking the world by storm. With its complex algorithms, it generates responses so human-like that you'll start wondering if you're talking to a real person or a machine. But before we get too excited about the prospect of fully automated luxury communism, we need to consider the ethical implications of AI. Are we creating a dystopian future or just a more convenient one? Aaron, my first question for you. Who do you think wrote that intro? Michael Walker. It wasn't me. It wasn't Stephen, our um, very talented researcher. It was ChatGPT4. Um, so the instruction I gave it was to write an intro to a Navarro video in the style of Michael Walker and please make a joke about fully automated luxury communism. And that's what it came up with. Now, I think it was, it was a little bit awkward. It, you know, it wasn't as smooth as maybe I would have written it, um, but it wasn't half bad. So yeah, maybe, maybe it's got a future. Um, let's take a look at the promo video from OpenAI. Um, the background here, ChatGPT4 came out this week. Lots of people very excited about it. This is the promo. GPT4 takes what you prompt it with and just runs with it. From one perspective, it's a tool, a thing you can use to get useful tasks done in language. From another perspective, it's a system that can make dreams, thoughts, ideas flourish in text in front of you. GPT-4 is incredibly advanced and sophisticated. It can take in and generate up to 25,000 words of text, around eight times more than ChatGPT. It understands images and can express logical ideas about them. For example, it can tell us that if the strings in this image were cut, the balloons would fly away. This is the place where you just get turbocharged by these AIs. They're not perfect, they make mistakes, and so you really need to make sure that you know the work is being done to your level of expectation. But I think that it is fundamentally about amplifying what every person is able to do. GPT-4 training finished last August, and everything that's been happening in the past few months up until we've released it has been a giant sprint to make it safer, more aligned, and also more useful. 
we have put in already a lot of internal guardrails around things like adversarial usage, unwanted content, and privacy concerns. And when we release a model, we know things are not done. We know we have to learn. We know we have to update. We know we have to keep improving all the systems around it to make it suitable for society. To me, the most compelling use cases of these technologies will come from starting with a real human need. The obvious one where these systems have really incredible potential is in education. GPT-4 can teach a huge range of subjects. Imagine giving a fifth grader a personal math tutor with unlimited time and patience. It's a great tool to bring learning to everyone in a way that is personalized to their skill level. GPT-4 brings the dream of having the most useful, helpful assistant to life. It's really about adding as much value to everyday life as possible. So that's the team at OpenAI's sort of ex explanation of ChatGPT4. As the author of Fully Automated Luxury Communism, Aaron, this is more your beat than it is mine. Um, how big a deal is the release of ChatGPT4? Well, not that big a deal. I mean, what it, what it does is it, it's, it's, it's a major moment. ChatGPT has clearly been a major moment in the unfolding story of what is machine learning. What is machine learning and why is it different from other forms of automation? Well, I did a TikTok about this and didn't do particularly well because it was posted by one of our colleagues from Australia, uh, which isn't good. And so we didn't hit the TikTok algorithm. Um, but machine learning basically is when you give a, a computer massive amounts of data and it has to uh, fulfill a certain task and it looks for, for patterns. Let me give you an example. Self-driving car is about machine learning. You have a car, it's a computer on wheels, it has vision, and basically it's inputted with huge amounts of data about the kinds of things that cars do, uh, how do you respond to this particular road, obstacles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's almost like a, a, a more general kind of intelligence going on with machine learning. Now, machine learning is going to destroy lots of jobs, particularly in highly repetitive white collar jobs, think accountancy, legal services, even in medicine, radiology is a, is a great area where you can see machine learning taking lots of people's jobs. There'll still be you know, radiographers, but the point is, one radiographer with machine learning tools will be 10 times more efficient at their job than 10 radio radiographers are at present. And I think that's how we need to understand AI with regards to labor productivity, work, and jobs. Doesn't mean that whole jobs are going to disappear. Doesn't mean that you know, everyone's going to be unemployed. We'll still have many of the same jobs we have today. They're not going to disappear. The point is we'll have far fewer of them. A great example is coding. So right now, people code. It's a job and it employs many, many people. And of course, you have junior coders, entry-level positions in the industry, and you, you go right the way to the top, right? You have more experience, professionals earn money, add more value. And some of the jobs you'd have for an entry-level coder, so for instance, debugging code or translating code from one coding language to another, is the sort of stuff that you could automate very soon, right? So all of a sudden, what that means is we still have coders. It's not all been automated, but there are fewer positions available. Um, and we see a massive rise in productivity because the remaining coders are equipped with really powerful artificial intelligence. So it's going to do a couple of things. It's going to, like I say, mean fewer jobs in many industries, particularly white collar industries where people have presumed job security for life, think accountancy. And it's also probably going to increase to even more um, economic inequality, both within and between countries. Why? Because the number of uniquely human jobs begins to contract. Um, and jobs that you know can't be automated using machine learning, think care work, think cleaners, think things that require fine motor coordination, but we refer to as unskilled. 
Well, those jobs still remain in the, in, the, in the case of care work, actually, those jobs will grow because we're an aging population. So you have fewer people can become accountants, work in legal services, work in even retail. A lot of that can be automated with machine learning. And more and more people go into the remaining sectors, which employ lots of people. What does that mean? When you have a large amount of people go into a new sector, um, you know, demand is broadly the same. You have more labor supply. Well, of course, that means the price that labor can ask for, their wages, goes down. So it's, it's going to lead to further inequality. This is in a great book called The Second Machine Age. I won't say the authors because one is Icelandic and his name is very difficult to pronounce, but it's cited in my book too. So even if you don't think it's the rise of the robots, all the jobs are going to disappear, um, there are still massive social, economic, and political implications, massive economic inequality probably way more than what we've seen right now. Let me finish with this. The analogy would be the steam engine, right? So imagine if you have China and the US, which by the way, are the only two countries who are serious when it comes to AI, although the US is trying to hobble China now through starving it of microprocessors. Um, there was a report, I think it was by PricewaterhouseCooper, which said that 70% of, um, of the value created by AI before 2030, 2035, I think it was about 15, 16, 17 trillion. PricewaterhouseCooper said 70% of that goes to the US and China. This is the equivalent of the steam engine and the value it creates at the, at the turn of the 19th century. And overwhelmingly, of course, the dividend of that goes to the United Kingdom, which temporarily was this global mega power. So if we already think of China and the US as very powerful entities, okay, let's see what happens with regards to AI in the next 20, 30 years. Now, this is so important. It's precisely why we're seeing this unfolding chips war between the US and China. The subtext to all of that is AI. Because if you master AI, you're going to master the, the, the most valuable economic applications of the next 10, 20, 30 years. Of course, if you want, you know, mixed market economy, you want big, powerful, wealthy companies. But also, if you want the leading, most innovative military innovations of the next 10, 20, 30 years, you also need AI. So if you want to be the, the global superpower with military capabilities, with large, powerful economy, you also need to be a technological leader. And to be the technological leader, like I say, for the next several decades, you'll need to be leading in AI. The US wants to stop that by starving China of microprocessors through these sanctions. It's also investing, I think, about $50 billion in its domestic microprocessor industry. China is investing $150 billion because, of course, it's starting from a, uh, it's further back compared to the US. The reason why they're doing all that is because AI is so, so important. Meanwhile, here in Europe, look, Michael, in Britain, we can't even build cycle lanes. So that's going to tell you something about the geopolitics of all this over the next 40, 50 years. Now, I'm feeling a little bit insecure because I started this section with a script written by ChatGPT. And actually, a lot of people in the comments are saying it wasn't half bad. Now, I don't want to just become a glorified autocue reader and have ChatGPT write the whole show. Right? So I do want to keep my job. And I'm going to try and convince you um, that ChatGPT can't do it. Um, so it doesn't always hit the nail on the head. So last night I asked it this, tell a joke that might appeal to the Navarra media audience. And it came up with this. Why did the socialist cat refuse to catch the mice? Because they believed in the equal distribution of whiskers. And then chuckles, but seriously, folks, we at Navarra Media are always up for a good laugh while discussing the important issues of our time. So that was ChatGPT's suggestion. Um, and I asked it for an explanation. I said, I don't, I don't actually really get that joke. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Can you explain? And ChatGPT says, I apologize if the joke wasn't clear. It was a lighthearted attempt at combining the theme of socialism with the behavior of cats. Let me break it down for you. 
In the joke, we have a socialist cat. Socialism is an economic and political system that advocates for the equal distribution of wealth and resources among the people. The punchline is that the cat refuses to catch the mice because they believe in the equal distribution of whiskers. Here, whiskers is a playful substitution for wealth or resources. The joke is meant to be funny because it's absurd for a cat to be concerned with socialism and the equal distribution of whiskers. The aim was to create a light-hearted moment for the Navarra media audience who were generally interested in politics and social issues while keeping the tone fun and engaging. Now, the problem there for me, Aaron, I, can, I, I got why they'd said the equal distribution of whiskers, but why would that stop a cat from catching the mouse? No, something's, there's a bug. See, we're gonna there's, dis- there's a bug in chat, we're gonna, No, 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 we're going to disagree. This is actually a sign of intelligence. Making a bad joke and then explaining it is a sign of intelligence. It could scan for good jokes, which are very funny. Making a very poor joke on the basis of data you've inputted and then explaining what the joke actually means is very, very smart. I know this sounds dumb, but it's true. You know, there's also a, there was a photo, probably people are familiar with this. You know, there's a meme of like, you know, chicken, breaded chicken nuggets. And it's like a map of the world. And it's like, oh, the world is so beautiful. And somebody fed this meme to ChatGPT4 and it explained what it really was and why it's a meme and why it's, it's basically like an absurdist meme and it's kind of stupid. The, the idea that you almost engage in the explanation and understanding of something which is absurd, wow, Michael, for a machine to be doing that is really, really incredible. Let's move on to our final story. Mick Lynch can run rings around even the most intelligent opposition. So on Politics Live this week, Tory MP Jonathan Gullis didn't stand a chance. 3% is a very good offer on the table with modernisation. But you've heard even now Network Rail are moving to a position where they're saying we will go above 3% with modernisation. And Mick's talking about, you know, modernisation is a scary thing. Modernisation such as installing an app on your phone so you can communicate better with your workers or having sensors on trains to detect um, deficiencies in the rail network in the rail network, I don't think are controversial things. I think they're good things because they means that drivers are safer and ultimately all uh, people on the rail line as well are safer. And that's what we want to see, the best health and safety we can. And what Mick's doing is undermining the rail network. We know passenger numbers are down by about 20% to pre-pandemic levels. We are in a world where we want to get to a place where we have net zero. That means encouraging more people onto public transport. These strikes are only going to drive people further away from it. And the pay rise that Mick wants will therefore just add more cost to the rail network, making it more unaffordable for more working people. He should be apologising to the doctors and nurses who can't get to hospital, the patients who can't get their operation, the kids who will miss out on their education today, but also those Armed Forces veterans who risk their lives for our freedoms who won't be able to celebrate Armed Forces Day on Saturday. Do you want to apologise for all that, Mick? Well, I think Jonathan should apologise for talking nonsense. None of that is true. We have got... Uh, automated technology on trains. We've got pantograph cameras. We've got ultrasonic sensors. We've got things that detect faults on tracks. That that is all rubbish. I negotiated that deal with Network Rail myself. We've got on-train technicians, uh, all sorts of new technology that is being deployed. So that is just stuff that's written in Conservative Central Office for oh. backbench M- MPs to spout. So no sorry their for veterans, ministers. Mick. Okay, so no now, sorry to I don't veterans. want this disruption. Fine. I don't want people to be inconvenienced. Uh, and I want a settlement to this dispute. I can't do that with a backbench MP who's just learned it off a script. <laughs> I can't do that with a backbench MP who's just learned it off a script. Very good final line. Um, Aaron, what do you make of that? What a man. What a guy. He bodied him. I do love this thing about, because um, we were just talking about automation quickly, Michael. You know, the, the tourists about self-driving trains. Like, look, you can't even invest in lifts 
at stations we already have what you want self-driving trains across the country presumably there'll be high speed you know shinazakan style japanese trains too you know this, that would require hundreds of billions of pounds of investment in in cutting edge technologies or technologies which don't yet exist I, I suspect somehow it's not going to happen like this idea the suggestion there is basically the reason we have um, a train system that isn't particularly modern is because we have these these Luddite union members who work on them who just won't possibly allow technology that might threaten their jobs. Now, the reason our, our, our rail system is incredibly backward is because it's taken us 40 years to build HS2, right? HS2 doesn't cost 100 billion pounds because some union members want to maintain their job security. It costs 100 billion pounds because a bunch of Tory MPs have said, oh, we couldn't possibly have a train track through our lovely field. Right, so the the reason we have uh, we're a backward country when it comes to infrastructure, when it comes to transport systems, when it comes to trains, it has nothing to do with union members who want job security. It has everything to do with a state which is unwilling to invest, which when it does invest, does it via these subcontracted companies who are only good at getting contracts and not building anything, and then a bunch of MPs who block it the moment something is about to get built because you know it might block the sight of a tree for one of their you know wealthy constituents. That's why. And as I say, Mick Lynch is always very good at getting that across. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Michael, I want to quickly say it's not just Tories, it's Lib Dems. There was a leaflet recently of a local Lib Dem councillor. Every single point on their leaflet was, I've stopped something. Not I've done something, I've stopped something. So it's not just the Tories, sadly. A good point. I should not, uh, why, why do I let the Lib Dems off, off lightly? I'm, I'm honestly not secretly a uh, sympathizer. Um, thanks everyone for watching this evening. Have a great weekend and we'll be back on Monday night for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.